Amen. Lord, that's so true. You alone are awesome. Nobody else is but you. No one, we use that word, but no one else deserves it. And Lord, I just ask that as we go to your word right now, that you administer to every heart that is here. I do pray, Father, you help give us a clear understanding of who you are, because to know you is to love you. And Lord, at the same time, this is a, an exhortive text for all of us, Lord, to walk in purity before you, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. So may you bless your word. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges 17. If you happen to come in and didn't get one, we have plenty of Bibles at the back table. We'd be glad to give you one. You can raise your hand if you need one. We'll make sure you get one in your hands. All right. Well, we kind of changed gears tonight. We're in Judges. We've been going through Judges for the last 16 chapters, 16 weeks or so. And as we've seen, there's this cycle, as we've talked about in Judges. Because first you have you know, Exodus, they're going through, they're coming, being delivered out of bondage. And then in Leviticus, they were given the law at Mount Sinai. And then in Numbers, they wandered through the wilderness. That's really a, a better name for Numbers, is a, maybe the wandering and then as they wander through the wilderness, they all die there because of their disobedience, that entire generation. Then Deuteronomy, they're given the law yet again. Then in Joshua, they now enter into the land. They've gone into the land, and God had a promise for them. But if you'll remember, two and a half tribes chose to stay outside of the land. Nine and a half tribes went in. Two and a half tribes said, you know what? We don't want to have to hassle it. We don't want to go in there and fight any more enemies. The grass is green out here. And even though God had commanded they go over the Jordan, they camp just outside of it. And a great exhortation for all of us that we should not be satisfied with less than God's highest in our lives. We shouldn't be satisfied to be just outside of what God has for us. Because the Lord wants to do great things in us. But under Joshua's leadership, they entered in and they again, had gone into that land of promise. But once they got there, there were fortresses and great armies awaiting them. They went in and fought great battles and won. And now we come to the book of Judges. And this records their struggles in the land. A lot of times you think, well, if I get to the land of promise, no more problems. And if I give my life to Jesus Christ, I'm never going to have another problem again. And too often I hear people say to me, yeah, I gave my life to the Lord because I thought all my problems were going to go away. And you know what? They just got worse. And from the world's perspective, they might. But guys, you know what? We're going to heaven, and it doesn't get any better than that. Amen? And any trial that we go through here and now is so that we might be conformed more into His image, and that's what it's all about. So we can praise God in our trials because God is faithful. So they come finally into the land, and then we've seen a 400-year period of time that began with a judge by the name of Othniel. He was the first judge, Caleb's son-in-law, if you'll remember him. And now we've got all the way through to Samson. And during that time, we saw seven cycles of the same thing happen over and over and over. And the cycles went something like this. They would start out serving the Lord, doing well. Then the judge would die, the deliverer. Not a judge in a black robe, but a deliverer. That's what the judges really were. And as soon as he would die, oh well, they get their eyes back on the world. They forget about God and they start getting back into sin and into rebellion, and then God would bring somebody, bring a group of people who would then enslave them because of their sin. Then after some time, they would cry out to God again. He would raise up another deliverer who would take them out of bondage, get them back into right fellowship with God, and as soon as that judge died, what did they do? Same thing over again. And you look at the, the children of Israel, and you want to think knuckleheads. I mean, really, right? 
over and over and over. But then again, I look in the mirror sometimes and I have to think knucklehead because I do it too, don't you? You, you, you know, and isn't there certain areas of your life where you just think you're past it and, okay, God's delivered me from that and then something happens. And I hate to be this graphic, but the Bible says like a dog returning to its vomit. We go right back there again, right? But you know what's so great? Our God is a gracious God, isn't He? And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And that, to me, is really the story of judges, that they keep blowing it, but God keeps forgiving them. Now, at the same time, we need to know this, that God's patience is not God's permission. Because God allows us to continue on in our sinful behavior, and sometimes we don't see the immediate consequences, doesn't mean it's going to go on forever. So now we're coming to the end of Judges, and we've seen all these cycles, and the last five chapters, it's kind of unique. It's kind of an appendix to the book. And what I mean by that is we've gone through all the historical and and, and in chronological order, and basically we're done with that. And now it's almost like going back in time, having a flashback, and having seen how the judges operated, we're now going to see some of the normal people, the non-judges, and what their life was like in the midst of all this. Kind of going to go back, and this first chapter we're going to look at is really right about the time of Judges chapter 1 or 2. It's right around the time when they just, again, you know, been delivered, they're in the land of promise, and, and you know, Josh was there, and things are going well, and in the middle of all of that, as we know, it says they start to do what is right in their own eyes. They stop seeking the Lord, they stop trusting in God. Judges chapter 2 says, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Think about that. They were in the wilderness. The Lord was with them. They, part, they went through the Red Sea, some of them, right? They've seen God. They saw the, the great works He did in Egypt. They've been delivered out of bondage. And now they come all the way through and an entire generation dies because of their disobedience. And they see the, you know, the pillar of fire and the, the pillar of a cloud and the manna falling from the sky and God wiping out the, the, all the different enemies that came in their way. And then the next generation doesn't even know there's a God. How in the world does that happen? And we're going to get a taste of that in tonight's text. I titled the text for tonight, Attributes of an Ungodly Society. And this is going to sound real familiar when you hear it. Because we're living in one. Amen? Amen. But at the same time, that's why we're here. It's to be salt and light. So we're coming to tonight's text. We've gone through those 400 years. And now we're going to see the attributes of an ungodly society. And as we take this close look at the hearts of the people, it's not going to be a very pretty picture, but it'll probably be one that, again, we will recognize. You know, it's even worse that people turn their eyes away from God, but it's even worse when God's people do it. I mean, it's tragic that we would do it. It's one thing for somebody else to be rude to my earthly father, but it's something else when I do it. He's my dad. And think about that with our heavenly father. All that he's done for us. What a faithful and loving God. And we need to learn, again, to be different than the world in the way that we respond to the world around us. In these final five chapters, we're going to see how these people had become. And we're going to get a glimpse. And in tonight's text... The application is going to be heavy for all of us as the loss of of a moral and spiritual compass or better stated spiritual direction is going to lead to the potential destruction of three institutions that God created. These are three institutions God created. We're going to talk about tonight. Well, actually two of them tonight and one of them next week. And here's what they are. The home, the church, 
and the government. God created all three of them. God absolutely created all three of them. But the decay, unlike what you and I would like to think maybe, does not start with the government. We think because the government's falling, that's why there's decay in the country. Let me tell you where the decay starts. It starts in the home. And then it moves into the church. And then it's reflected in the society. If you look at the society, it's a reflection of what's happening in our homes and in our churches. If we, you know, it's interesting. I forget the Englishman's name. There's an Englishman that was sent to the United States early on when we were early as a country. And he tried to find out what made us as a country so great. And he says he went into the factories and he didn't find it there. And he went into the fields and he didn't find it there. And he went to the streets and he didn't find it there. And you know where he says he found it? He found it in the churches. Because the people were on fire for God, worshiping the Lord, set apart unto Him. And he said, America is great because America is godly. And America will cease to be great as soon as America ceases to be godly. Guys, we need to take the part that we can grab hold of and be proactive. First in our homes and then in our churches. In the place where we fellowship together as a body of believers. So, if you're a note taker. Attributes of an ungodly society. Number one, I'm going to give you six things real quick if you take notes. Number one, parents unwilling to exert godly discipline. Number one, parents unwilling to exert godly discipline. Number two, parents unwilling to take spiritual headship. Parents unwilling, you might have kids right now, take notes anyway, because you're going to have them or you're going to have grandkids or nieces or nephews or something, amen? And we need to be ministering one to another. Number three, people wanting to worship God in their own way. Welcome to Santa Cruz. People wanting to worship God in their own way. You know, just as long as you worship something and you're sincere, is that the stupidest thing you've ever heard in your life? It has got to be about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. If you sincerely believe that two plus two is nine, it's still four. Amen? It doesn't matter how hard you believe something if it's not true. And yet, the world we live in today, oh, as long as you believe in something, doesn't really matter. So, parents unwilling to exert godly discipline, parents unwilling to take spiritual headship in their homes, most specifically dads. Number three, people wanting to worship God in their own way. Number four, a lack of godly fear and respect for His Word. A lack of godly fear and respect for His Word. These are signs of an ungodly society. What are we living in? An ungodly society. But God's called us to be here, to be salt and light. Number five. Ungodly men and women attempting to legitimize their beliefs and behavior. People who do not walk with God trying to make their relationships and their lifestyles legitimate before God. And again, you see that in the world today big time. And we'll talk about that as we get to it. And then lastly... That the spiritual leaders are called by men and not by God. Spiritual leaders are called by men and not by God. They're raised up by men instead of being raised up by the Lord. And you know what you get when you do that? You get a hireling. You get somebody who tickles ears. The Bible says in the end times, men will raise up for themselves ear ticklers who will tell you what you want to hear. One, you know, Again, a healthy church will grow, but also an unhealthy church can grow. A church that doesn't teach the Bible can grow. You know, if we hand out donuts and 
Big Macs and have Bozo the Clown here on Sunday and just tell you guys how wonderful you are every week and make it like a big slide, you know, and you'll, hey man, you can come to church and walk out of here not being impacted at all and feeling good about it. And that's kind of what's happening in the text that we're going through tonight. So attributes of an ungodly society, a reflection of its homes and churches. Number one, parents unwilling to exert godly discipline. Let's look at verse one. Now, there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim. Just real quick, mountains of Ephraim back in Joshua 17. Remember when they divided up the land into 12 tribes? Just stay in it and don't, don't turn a page. I don't want to lose you guys. Back in Joshua 17, it says there that there was debate by the Ephraimites because they felt like they didn't have enough land. And, the, and Joshua went to him and said, you got plenty of land. You guys just need to quit being faithless. You know what? God had given them plenty of land, but they were not being faithful to go out and conquer it. Well, it's in that very area where this man, Micah, who we're going to talk about, comes from. But it's also interesting, it's the very area where Joshua would later be given his inheritance. So a man of the mountains of Ephraim, whose name, it says there in verse 1, was Micah. Now Micah means, who is like Jehovah? That's a great name. Right, Micah? (laughs) that's a great name your name means who is like jehovah and that means that at some point somewhere this young man had a godly upbringing of some type because you don't name your kids who is like jehovah in the midst of idolatry unless you have a heart for the true and living god but we're going to notice tonight that the dad is gone must have died something happened he's not around anymore Micah is probably a little bit older, has a family of his own. And we're going to see what kind of man he's become. And we're going to see the interaction with his mother and how that has an impact on the man that he is. Now the name points to some type of godly heritage, but we're going to see from the text, he doesn't act like a godly man. He does not honor the Lord. You know what? He's a man of moral and spiritual confusion. What kind of man is he? Let's take a look. Verse 2. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you. Somebody had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his mom. Now, 1,100 shekels of silver, how much is that? You worked a year for 10 shekels. So 1,100 shekels was 110 years worth of wages. A little bit of money. And someone stole it from his mom. How do you think his mom's feeling? Not too good. So he's got a very wealthy mom. This goes to prove again, wealthy parents do not equate to godly kids. Doesn't forbid us from having godly kids, but you know what? It's not giving your kids stuff that makes them godly. It's giving them the word. Sometimes you need to stop giving them so much stuff, as we're going to see from tonight's text. She gives her son a little too much stuff, and it leads him away from the Lord and not to the Lord. So he says to her, Mom, you know that money that was stolen from you? Then it says, on which you put a curse. Now, somebody took the money, and because they took the money, she cursed whoever stole it. She said, I curse whoever took my money. I curse them. Now, Micah hears this, not convicted by the Holy Spirit, but afraid of his mom's curse. Does this tell us where this guy is spiritually? It's not that the Holy Spirit's convicting him that what he did is wrong. Instead, it's the curse from his mom that he's worried about. This is what happens when people get away from the Word of God. They'll believe just about anything. Have you ever noticed that? They'll get caught up in what the magic eight ball says if they don't believe in the true and living God. Amen? Yeah, but my thing and my astrologer said, I'm like, you know, stop it already. You got the Bible right here. Amen? But we'll get caught up in every superstition if we don't trust the Word of God. 
It's amazing how that happens. So here's what he says. That silver that was taken from you on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. Hey, mom, you know all that money that was stolen from you, your life savings, everything you ever had, and you cursed the person who took it? Well, uh, it was me. I stole all your stuff, mom. Now, what kind of man is this so far who would steal from his mom? Tells us a lot. Micah, not so much. Following Jehovah, like his name, would make you think that he would. Micah was moved to confess again, I believe, more than anything because he was afraid of the curse that his mom had put upon him. How confused is this young man? He fears his mom's curse while taking lightly God's commands. So Micah is no doubt in some huge trouble, right? His mom, now if you still, your life savings from your mom. You know, if I took a $5 bill out of my mom's wallet when I was a kid, I wouldn't be sitting down for a week. Amen? And I would deserve it. I would quickly become a hovercraft. You know what I mean? I mean, I'd just be, oh, why? Because discipline is a good thing. Godly discipline is a good thing. The Bible tells us that, di- that the rod will drive disobedience far from them. We live in a liberal world today that says, oh, if you, if you discipline your children, you're just, oh, it's so harsh for them. You know, how's that working out not disciplining our kids? How's that working out for us so far? We're filling jails with them, aren't we? The society's a train wreck because we stopped disciplining our kids. Now, always do it in love. Amen? Always in love. Always in love. Never in anger. But I think his mom's got a little too much love because look what she says. And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. What? He stole 110 years worth of wages and she blesses him. Mom, I blew up the car, I burned the house down, I did it on purpose, and uh, yeah, it was me, and oh, well, bless you, my son. This is not a mom who is leading her son in godliness. She pronounces a blessing upon him. How incredibly mixed up had these people become? No doubt she thought she was being gracious when in truth her actions were going to produce long-term harm for her son. The family is God's foundation for society. He talks about marriage and family more in the Bible than even the church. When God wedded Adam and Eve in the garden, throughout scripture he built everything on the foundation of that marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage is again, he told them to be fruitful and multiply. Marriage and family are spoken of more in the Bible as I said even than the church. So marriage and family is where primary ministry should take place. The number one place your kids should learn about the Bible is in your house. And too often we leave it all to the church. Now, they should learn it here too. But this ought to be gravy, not steak and potatoes, what they get here. Amen? They ought to get it at home. They ought to get it at home. And if you just trust the church to do it, often they're not going to get as much as they should. And dads, can I encourage you? Your kids should think of you almost like their pastor, or more so. They should think of you as a person they would run to if they had a spiritual question. Not wait till youth group on Wednesday nights so they can ask Pastor Vince, but run to dad and ask him. Run to mom and ask her, raising up godly kids. It's the place where primary ministry should be taking place is in the home. The number one place they sh- that we should grow, be loved, be disciplined, and be fed. Marriage families 
or un- marriage and families are under attack because the enemy knows if he can wipe out the family, he can destroy the rest of everything because that's the foundation. If he can tear up our families, he can tear up the body of Christ and he can tear up the society, right? So the family's under attack. Now, Micah to me is a picture of a spoiled, rotten brat. Blows it, lies, as we're going to see, just totally outside of God's will, and his mom gives him stuff. And she probably thinks she's being a really good mom. No, she's not. You know what? Our kids need to be disciplined. He steals from his mom, and instead of being punished, he was rewarded. The Bible says, those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. So if the Lord loves us and He disciplines us, how much more should we be disciplining our children? When you are quick to excuse your children's behavior, they, and they don't have to suffer any consequences, they begin to think of their behavior as being not a big deal. If there's no consequence, it's not a big deal, right? It's insignificant. No problem. I can continue on this behavior because when I did it, nothing happened. You're setting up your kids for a lifetime of disobedient behavior. You know what? Instead of giving the kid a bag of lollipops, which is basically what she did, she blessed him, right? He should have been getting the board of education upon the seat of learning with great force and frequency. That's what he should have had. The board, I have one at home. We have one. It says on it, my kid's a little older now. We're kind of past it, but it says right on it, the board of education. It's on the paddle. And when I swat them, I do it with great force and great frequency. Because... They need to know that, now again, always in love, never in anger. You know, do it. Bring the heat. They need to know it. They need to know they were swatted. Don't go up and, that's not swatting. Your kids will walk by and they'll go, oh, and then they'll go laugh. And they tell their brother and sister, mom, yeah, I should have seen it. Don't do that. Don't do that. I would encourage you not to spank with your hand, too. It's an instrument of love. Get a paddle. Let them fear the paddle. Oh, not the paddle. I was really kind of a rough dad. I'd make them go get the paddle. And then go wade in the laundry room. They, they grew to hate, like, you know, the smell of bleach. You know what I mean? Not the laundry room, you know. And go to the laundry room. And I'd leave them in there sometimes. Let them think about it. You know, the anticipation. Oh, no. But you know what? Often, after the swats, would come an ice cream cone. You know why? Because God is a God who disciplines us. But He's also a God who gives us grace. Amen? I'll tell you one of the lessons that just came to mind that I did with my kids and they are blown away. They still remember it. As one time, one of my boys, I won't say who because they're already in a fishbowl and they're already, so I'm not going to pick on one of them. But one of my boys did something really, 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 really out of control bad. And he was about seven. And I was about to give him a swat and then a friend of mine was over, kind of a big guy who worked out with. And as I was about to give him a swat, I called all the kids in. And he was bent over about to get a swat. And I said, you know what? And I, I went and bent over in this place and had my buddy hit me as hard as he could ten times. And why did I do that? Because then I turned to my son and I told my kids, I said, now, understand, you deserved it. And I took it for you. And that's what Jesus did. I deserved it. And he took it for me. And so when we do this, this is giving them a lesson. It's disciplining them, doing it in love. But if you don't discipline your kids, the Bible says you don't love them. You don't love them. You don't care what happens to them. You don't care about their future. You don't care about the person they become. The rod will drive disobedience far from them. Show grace, but never excuse or downplay the significance of sinful behavior, ever. 
That's the reason that Micah's going to become the man he is. And when we get to the next week's chapter, you're going to be, this guy's just as bad as it gets. And it starts with a parent who would not discipline him. Again, God doesn't keep us from sin because he's a no-fun bummer God. He keeps us from sin because he knows it will harm us. Because he loves us. And we ought to do the same with our kids. So, attributes of an ungodly society. Number one, parents unwilling to exert, exert godly discipline. Number two, parents unwilling to take spiritual headship. Look at verse three. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Therefore, I return it to you. Now, what in the world is up with this woman? Her son steals her money. He lies. He only is afraid because he thinks he's going to be cursed. He gives her the money back. She blesses him and then gives him uh, some of it back to make some idols out of. Thanks, Mom. Thanks for the raising me that way. I really appreciate it. What is up with Micah's mom? And I wonder again, where's Micah's dad? I don't know. But that's always a lesson to me. Where's dad? How come dad's not here? Now, maybe he died. I don't know. Maybe he was a very godly man. Maybe he's one that named him Micah. And now he's gone and, the, and, the, and his wife's not carrying on what he had started. So she was thankful that she'd, give, that she'd gotten her money back. And again... She gives it to him. And it says there to make a carved image and a molded image. A carved image was carved out of block of wood or stone and then plated in silver. And the molded image was literally a figure formed out of solid silver. It was, it was cast in a mold and it was solid silver. How confuses this woman? She's going from bad to worse. She excuses his ungodly behavior and now she's promoting idolatry in her own children. Wanting what is best for our kids, we can end up purchasing them idols as well. Some of your kids have idols with controllers that they play in front of for eight hours a day. We got Xbox in my house. I love to play sports games with my kids, but that can become an idol if we're not careful. Amen? There's so many other things we can buy for our kids that are going to take their eyes off of God, their computer, the internet, whatever it might be, where we, start, we're, we're, we think we're blessing them and all we're doing is distracting them. And we need to make sure it's okay for our kids to have those types of things as long as God is always first. Often, we help take their eyes off of God by doing things that we think are being good parents. By the way, how we use our money really shows who it belongs to. She said it was dedicated to the Lord, but she bought idols with it. So who is it dedicated to? Not the Lord. Amen? If it was dedicated to the Lord, she would have brought it down to the you know, to the tabernacle and, and given it there, but instead she made idols with it. So it was not dedicated to the Lord. Again, I want to say something significant here. These were not pagan images, but images that represented to him the presence of God. Let me say that. They were not pagan images. This was not Ashtaroth he was making. He was making things to honor Jehovah. Now, is that okay? What's the answer? That was weak. What's everybody afraid? Is it a trick question or something? What's the answer? No. Absolutely not. We are not to make graven images of Jesus Christ. We are not to make graven images of saints. Amen? Not to do that. And you know what it is? 
When people make statues and when they have icons that they kiss and things like that, it's only because their own relationship with God has deteriorated to the point that they need something visual to try to get it back. You know what? My best friend is Jesus Christ, and I don't need any man-made pictures to get my eyes back on Him. And what happens is the Lord says, don't have that stuff, because what happens? You start worshiping the statue. You go to Rome, I haven't been there, Pastor Bill told me, you go to Rome and people have kissed the toes of Peter so much on this this statue that his toes are gone. They've kissed his toes off. And here's the point. We don't worship idols, we worship a risen and living Savior, amen? Amen. And it breaks the heart of God when we think we've got to create something to get our focus on the Lord. Problem is, if you need those to relate to God, it shows you've lost the true sense of God in your life and His Holy Spirit living within you. You're trying to find it in an image. And again, it's a mark of spiritual deterioration, which is trying to be filled with these images rather than God. But you know what? This fallen nature of man wants to make a, make a God in his own image, don't we? We want a God in our own image that we can relate to better. I go to India every year. I, I just get a headache when I drive by and I see people on their knees worshiping a cow. Or worshiping an elephant god. Or a monkey god. And you know what? I don't laugh. My heart breaks. I, I told you last year, I was sitting there and I mean... I. I was just in tears looking at this guy on his knees in front of the shrine to the elephant god. It was made out of, I don't know, cement or marble. I don't know what it was made out of. And he's sitting there and he's just weeping. And he's got all the ashes on his face and he's just crying out to the elephant god. And I was like, Lord, give me the gift of tongues so I can just speak to this guy in his language and share the gospel with him. Because my heart broke. And God's heart breaks when we get our eyes off of Him and put it on anything made by man. Amen? Verse 4. Thus He returned the silver to His mother. Then His mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith and He made it into a carved image and a molded image and they were in the house of Micah. He took some idols home and put them in His house. And again, when you don't know the true and living God, you'll try to find something else to make you closer to God. And again, I went and looked at a house a couple years ago with my wife, not one that we bought, but in this house, they had dedicated an entire room to their Hindu faith, and they had all these little statues in their room, and flowers everywhere, and you could see where the family would go in there and pray to their statues. And I thought, Lord, how heartbreaking. And this is what a mom is promoting in her son by not only allowing him to be involved in idolatry, but actually paying for the idols and allowing them, you know, giving them to him as a gift. You know, it's interesting that even in Exodus, it says that Aaron made the golden calf as a representation of Jehovah. The golden calf was supposed to represent Jehovah in a tangible way. You can look it up in Exodus 20 and Exodus 32. And so there he made it. And what did Moses do when he came down and saw them worshiping a golden calf that they were using to be an object that they could focus on Jehovah with? How'd that work out? God opened up the ground and swallowed up some folks. Not too good. God doesn't want us worshiping anything else. Amen? So be careful. Be careful. 
You know what? I'll tell you what I love to do when I worship. Not focus on anything but Him. Just close my eyes. Amen? Not looking at a picture, not looking at a statue, not looking... Just, you know what? Him. Him. Focus on Him. So, it says in Leviticus, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you find a place, place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. Nothing. So here's where we're at. We've got a son who steals, a mother who doesn't punish, and an entire family filled with I- idols in their house who think that they're pleasing God. A man who steals, a mother who doesn't punish, a family of idol worshipers who think they're pleasing God. How does that happen? You stop looking at the Word of God. How else do you get duped? How else do you fall, in, uh, fall into the, the trap of thinking that your lifestyle is okay when it's so clearly contrary to the Word of God, you stop reading the Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? And it's God's Word that keeps our eyes where they need to be. Verse 5. So the third thing we're going to see, people wanting to worship God in their own way. Look what it says. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols. He consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Okay, it's not good enough to have idols in my house i got to have a shrine. Because if I'm going to have idols, i got to have a place for the idols to stay. And the word shrine there literally means house. And so he built a house inside of his house and he put his idols in there. And that way other people could come and visit his idols in his house. And then it wasn't good enough to have idols in his house. He needed to make it as much like the real tabernacle where God was worshipped, the one and only place where God was to be worshipped. So he got an ephod. If you remember, if you were here in Exodus, in Leviticus, an ephod was a priestly garment only worn by the high priest that had 12 gems in it that were the 12 tribes of Israel that was near and dear to his heart. And it was the thing he reached into to pull out the Urim and the Thummim, which were colored stones, when he was seeking God's guidance and God's will for his people. And now he's taking an ephod and he needs a priest. Well, I gotta, if I got idols, I gotta have a shrine. If I got a shrine, I gotta have, you know, priestly garments. I got priestly garments, I gotta have a priest. Well, let me just make my son the priest. I just want to worship God in my own way. I just, you know, hey, I, you know, I find God on the golf course. That's just where, you know, I'm just one with nature out there. Nature did not die on the cross for you. Amen? Will not save you. But I'm just one with my maker when I go out on the surfboard. And, you know, God bless you if you like to surf. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you think the waves are going to save you, you're in trouble. Let's talk after church. I need to pray for you. Household idols. That means not only the idols that had already been made, now he had some other little idols he could keep all around the house so he could remember and see the idols everywhere he went. Again, God's worship, these little idols, in hopes of prosperity and guidance, and he consecrates his own son. The word consecrate means to set apart for holy use. But what did God say? Who were the only people that could be the priest? The Levites, and then within the Levites, it had to be the sons of Aaron. Micah's not a Levite. His son's not a Levite. He's not of the tribe of Aaron. He's not set apart or called by God. He's called by man. He sticks him in the spot and says, oh, it's good enough. As long as we got somebody doing it, it doesn't really matter. Again, he had gods. He had a shrine. He had an ephod. He needed a priest so he could have the imitation worship. Only one high priest was consecrated to God. Why? Because there's only one way to heaven. 
Jesus is the only way. When you look at the tabernacle, we don't have time, but I want to encourage you. Every piece of the tabernacle says Jesus, 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 Jesus all over it. Every bit of it. You know, the bronze altar in a shape, perfect shape of a man, a man could lay on it perfectly. It's square. Had four points on it. Like the cross had four points. As our Savior was nailed in his hands and his feet, And you move from there to the bronze laver, that picture of the cleansing that happens there. And going into the Holy of Holies, you know, the bread, the table of showbread. Who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. Who's the light of the world, right? Jesus, our Savior. Everything that was in the Holy of Holies. You go into the holy place and there's the, the seraphim, right, which are the angels, And there's the mercy seat with the law inside of it. If you remove the mercy seat, you would die. Why? Because the law reveals you're a sinner, and that's why we need God's mercy. And then we come in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood in the center of the mercy seat. And it's interesting, when when they they went into the tomb to see Jesus when he had risen, there were angels at the front and at the top, right? At his head and at his feet. And what was in the middle? Bloody cloth left behind by him when he went through it. He picked it up and folded it up and set it down. Amen? When you looked at the Holy of Holies, you saw Jesus all over it. And so when someone tries to have an imitation, something else, somewhere else, it's not Jesus. And they're picking another God and another path that doesn't exist. And this cannot be taken lightly. And here he is, in a sense, creating a competing tabernacle. You know, let's just make it more convenient for you. If you want to worship, you don't have to go all the way over there with the tabernacle. Let's just come by my house. Let's just make it easy on you and make it, you know, uh, not quite so heavy. You know, you go down there and they're having all the blood of the animal. We're not going to do all that here. We're just going to, you just come over here and walk through and look at the idols and we'll hang out. It'll be no problem. Sounds like a lot of churches today. Amen. Don't talk about the Christ cross. People might be offended. Don't talk about the resurrection. Don't tell people they're sinners in need of a savior. Let's just make it real easy for them. You know, as a matter of fact, now there's a big thing to just have church on the internet. Now you don't have to leave your house. You just go home and hit the thing, well, and just watch church for how, you know, you can get up and take a shower during church. I mean, you know, right? Come back whenever you want. Just make, make it as easy as possible. All this came from Micah, not from God. This was man originated, it was a man-centered religion, and the purpose of the beautiful ephod and these attractive idols was to please man and not God, and to draw people away from the true place of worship. The pattern of man-pleasing religion is common in our churches today. And again, he came to his own God in his own way to make it more convenient and more tangible. The world says one God is as good as any. You've heard me say it a hundred times, so 101 won't kill you. Buddha is bowing to Jesus. Muhammad is bowing to Jesus. Charles Taze Russell, the creator of Jehovah's Witnesses, is bowing to Jesus. Joseph Smith of the Mormon Church is bowing to Jesus. Amen? Every one of them. Why? Sinners in need of a Savior, all of them. Jesus Christ is the only way. Man, that's just so narrow. Man, you, man, you're just so stinking narrow, man. Why don't you just relax a little bit? You know why? Because I'm burdened to make sure that every one of us knows clearly the path to heaven. Amen? You know, narrow is the road. And narrow is the way. And Jesus is the only way. So the attributes of an ungodly society, look no further than Micah. Here's Micah. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Then we'll move on to the number four. He didn't honor his mother. He stole from her. He lied about stealing it from her. He coveted the silver and saw it and took it. 
He had other gods before the true and living God. He had a graven image, and he profaned the Lord's name. He broke seven commandments without leaving his house. Micah. I just read them to you. He broke seven commandments without leaving his house. This was not a man who was desiring to follow and worship the true and living God. Again, he set up a false place of worship, all while he thought he was pleasing God. There are people all over the world today that think they're pleasing God. And you know what? We should not be self-righteous toward them. We should be loving enough to them to point them to the true and living God. Guys, it's there before the grace of God goes us. Amen? And so we need to point them to the truth, but not do it in arrogance, but do it in love. So how is it possible? Look at number four. A lack of godly fear and respect for His Word. Look at verse six. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Here's the biggest problem. There's no authority in the land. None. Who is supposed to be their king? Who's their king? God's their king. So if there's no king in Israel, they've turned their backs on God. They've decided to walk away from God. No authority, no standard for holiness. And this is where you get the beginning of moral relativism. What does that mean? Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. Well, if it's good for you, bro, man, that's cool. As long as it's good for you, man. If that that really helps you out, man, go for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm all behind you, man, if it's good for you. It's not good for you if you're going to spend eternity separated from Almighty God. Not good for you. Amen? There's not one person burning in hell right now that is thankful that people respected their beliefs. I'm just so glad they respected me. They're like, dude, why didn't you tell me? That's what they're saying. Amen? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you love me enough to share the truth with me? Again, we respect the person enough to love them, but we don't respect their beliefs because their beliefs are going to destroy them. I don't respect the belief of someone who thinks that doing uh, you know, heroin every day is really good for him. I just don't respect that. I'm sorry, dude, I don't respect that. Sorry. Love you, but that's wrong. Amen? And the same is true, even more so, when it comes to spiritual truth. Popular opinion is nothing more, listen to this, than the cumulative thought of wicked people. Popular opinion is nothing more than the cumulative thoughts of wicked people. The Bible says the man is perverse and wicked above all things. The heart of man. Isn't that true? So if people don't know God, and you take all of their opinions, what's the end result? Wickedness. Is it true or not? Well, we voted on it, and we think, oh, uh uh-oh. Ungodly men voted, and this is what they decided. Well, then it's probably not good. Amen? Now, the grace of God can step in and steer things the other way, but the truth is that we shouldn't say, well, if everybody voted, then it must be good. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, which means if you don't fear God, you have no wisdom. Amen? And everybody who's got a lot of degrees by their names gets mad every time I say that, but you know, when you put some stars in the sky, come talk to me. Amen? When you just speak, I'm like, boom, stars. Then Okay, then you can talk about how smart you are. Until then, no wisdom. Because you can't compare to God. God's word was the foundation for this country. It's what made our country great. And I'm tired of hearing that we were not founded as a Christian nation. That's a lie. You go into the Capitol building and there's six paintings on the wall in the Capitol building. Two Bible studies, a prayer meeting, and a baptism. Don't tell me we weren't founded on God. Why are we struggling as a nation? Because we've turned our backs on God. 
We're trying to get the Bible out of everything. How's that working out in our school system? You know, back in the day, you didn't get tax money unless you taught the Bible at school. Now, they'll take away all your tax money if you teach the Bible at school. What is happening to us? We're becoming a society that is turning its back on God, that has no fear of God and no reverence for His Word. The Word of God is under attack. And the collective immorality uh, and spiritual bankruptcy of sinful man is usurping the authority of the Word of God in this country. And while we need to pray and be proactive in sharing God's Word with the lost, there's one place that we can magnify the Word of God, and that's in your home and here at church. Amen? And I'm sad to hear that, church, that people in their homes go, man, yeah, we need to get the Bible back in school. Yeah, we do. How much Bible are you using at home? It's not against the law there, right? Well, no. You, should, you been in the Word with your family this week? Well, no. This month? No. This year? Not really. We need to get the Bible back in school. Dude, just start at home, amen? Let's give them the Word at home. And you know what else? Then you have churches that don't teach the Bible anymore. You, as long as you come here, you're going to get the Bible. You might all leave, but I'll, I'll be here by myself teaching the Bible. Why? Because this, that's what it's about, amen? It's God's Word that transforms lives. So we see this, this, these attributes of an ungodly society. Number, number five, ungodly men and women attempting, attempting to legitimize their beliefs and behavior. Look at verse seven. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem and Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite. And was staying there. We're going to find out later this guy, next chapter. His name is Jonathan. Guess who his grandfather is? Moses. This is Moses' grandson. Now Moses' grandson is a Levite. Because Moses was a Levite. And here's the interesting part. He's living in Bethlehem. You know what? There were 40 cities set aside for the the, uh, Levites within the land of Canaan. Bethlehem was not one of them. So this guy's living where he's not supposed to be living. God had called him, had a calling on his life, and this guy decided, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to go my own way. Even though God's got a calling on my life, I'm going to blow it off. I'm going to do things my way. And he's living in Bethlehem instead. He was a Levite. A Levite means joined to God. He was of the priestly tribe, though he was not a priest, because he was not one of the sons of Aaron. He was a descendant of Moses instead. So now look what it says. The man departed from the city, verse 8, of Bethlehem and Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. Does this guy look like he's being directed by God? What's the answer? He's not where he's supposed to have been, and now he's just kind of wandering, and he'll just go wherever, and whoever can pay him, basically, is where he's going to stay. And he's basically a priest for hire, but he's not really a priest. I'll Levite for hire. I'm just out here, and whoever will give me what I need, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go minister to them. Now, God had a calling on his life, but he walked away from it. He had no, again, he had no direction from the Lord. And this man is a picture of a hireling. You know what a hireling is? It's a pastor or someone in ministry who will do whatever it takes to please men so he can draw a crowd and gain a paycheck. He compromises his calling for cash. And you mock that and laugh at it, but guess what? Country's filled with them. And you know something? I grew up in a denomination where they tried to make my father, who was a pastor, a hireling. There would be four or five people that were trying to run the church and tell him what he could teach and when he could teach it, how long he could teach and what he should do and what he couldn't do. And my dad had, one, had two choices to make. 
be a hireling and do what they wanted or honor God. Knowing that if he didn't do what they wanted, he would lose his job. Well, he lost his job more than once. One time because he gave communion to a woman whose membership letter hadn't gotten in there in the mail yet from the other church. And they said, oh, you can't give her communion yet until her letter gets here. My dad's like, where do you find that in the Bible? And this is what happens when you're a hireling. People will tell, this is what, you know, and this is why we don't vote here. Because you guys can vote if you want. We're just not going to, we're going to do what God says. Amen? Because the cumulative votes of ungodly people, and I'm not saying you are, but you know what I'm saying? Here's the point. Nowhere in Scripture do you see him voting, do you? You know what we do? We just get in line with him and follow. The head of the church is him, not us. Amen? Lord, what do you want to do? That's where we're going, and here's our guidebook. Here's our roadmap right here. Amen? It's the Word of God and nothing else. Now, so he is willing to compromise. Look at verse 10. And Micah said to him, dwell with me. And be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes for your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Now, sorry, that's my, that's from, that's an olive leaf from the Garden of Gethsemane. Fell out of my Bible. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that this guy is given a price tag. For ten ten shekels and a shirt, you can be my hireling. I give you 10 shekels and a shirt, and you can come in and work in the shrine with the idols. Now, you would hope that for 10 million shekels and everything the world had to offer, he would walk away. But this man is not walking with God, and because he's a hireling, he's going to do it. He was called of God to ministry. He was to be a teacher of the law, and now he was going to break the very law. You know what else Levites did? They led people in worship. The Levites were the worship leaders. So they were the worship leaders, the Bible teachers, and the ministers, and he's walking away from all of it for ten shekels and a shirt. Unbelievable. But you know what? No matter what the price is, it's not enough. He said, if I, and here's, here's the thought process of Micah. If I can get him to serve, then that's really going to make my shrine legitimate. Because if people show up, they're going to see the statues. But I got a priest in there wearing an ephod. Now don't think that that doesn't look good, right? Hey, you know, we're not quite the tabernacle, but we're pretty close. And if I got a priest, certainly God's going to love that. It's like those who try to make their ungodly behavior okay by passing a law or finding a church to sanctify it. Abortion is murder, no matter how many people vote to say it's not. Amen? Amen. Sex outside of marriage is sin, no matter how much acceptance the world makes of it. Amen? Amen. Homosexuality is sin, no matter how many states allow them to marry each other. Amen? Amen? Now, we are to love, if you've had an abortion, the Lord forgives you and He's a gracious God. If you've had sex outside of marriage, the Lord loves you and He will forgive you. He's a loving and gracious God. Amen? And if you struggle with homosexuality or, you, or anybody, you know somebody who does, the Lord loves them so much he'd rather die than live without them. Amen? Amen? But that doesn't mean we condone the behavior. And it's sad because people are trying to legitimize their behavior by passing a law that says it's okay. I'm trying to understand why, they wanna, why people want to have marriage when they don't want the God who created marriage. What's the point? It's a biblical concept. God created, He makes the rules. Amen? And they can pass laws and do all all they want. It's not marriage if God's not at the center of it. 
So the Levite, look what it says, some sad words here. So the Levite went in. He sold his calling, his walk with God, to serve at a priest as a priest in a shrine of idolatry for 10 shekels and a shirt. Last point. Attributes of an ungodly society. Spiritual leaders called by men, not by God. Again, hirelings. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite. The word consecrate means to be set apart for holy use. Who's the only one that can do that? God. Amen? Men don't consecrate men. God does. Men don't call you. God does. And so this ungodly man, Micah, who's breaking every commandment in the book, who's got idols, is consecrating this Levite, Jonathan, who is the grandson of Moses, who should have known better. Amen? But what happens? Even those raised in a godly home, if they get their eyes off of God, even for a minute, how quickly he had gotten away from the very law God had given to his grandfather. Micah consecrated him. Now here's what I find interesting, and we'll close with this, one more verse after this, is that Micah's can always find Jonathan's, and Jonathan's can always find Micah's. Here's what I mean by that. People who want a man-centered gospel and a watered-down truth and want to worship God their own way can always find a pastor to give it to them. And a pastor who wants to preach a man-centered gospel and wants to be a hireling and do things solely for the money can always find people to follow him. And it's tragic. We see it all over Christian television. We see it all over Christian radio. We see it all over the world right now, right? I'm a, I listen to some of the things these guys say on TV, and I'm blown away that in unison, like a bunch of lemmings, everybody goes, Amen! And I'm like, were you paying attention to what the brother just said? And I don't even know if he's my brother. I've got to take that back. I don't know. But it just, you know, it's all about fleecing people's money and just straight-up heresy. You know what, guys? That's why I want you to all have a Bible in your hand while I'm teaching because I want you to make sure that what I'm saying to you is not my opinion but the Word of God. I want you looking right at it. Every once in a while, you guys will correct me. That's great. You'll say, you know, you said this in that verse and it really said that. Praise God. You're paying attention. That blesses me. I like that. Do more of it. Look what it says, last verse. So it says, He consecrated the Levite, the young man became his priest, and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since I have a Levite as priest. Hello. Now I know God will be good to me, because they passed a law legitimizing my behavior. Now I know God will be good to me, because, you know, it is so tragic here this guy is he thinks he's pleasing god and he's living so far away from god's will how does this happen you get out of the word how is this possible by operating according to man's wisdom instead of the word of god so in closing attributes of an ungodly society number one parents unwilling to exert godly discipline number two parents unwilling to take spiritual headship in their homes number three People wanting to worship God in their own way. Number four, a lack of godly fear and respect for His Word. Number five, ungodly men and women attempting to legitimize their beliefs and behavior. And number six, spiritual leaders who were called by men and not by God. You know, the number one thing I look for when I'm praying about people in ministry here is 
and, I, and this is what I just spoke on at the pastor's conferences last week. They had me speak to the pastors. I did a workshop. And I talked about balancing being a husband, a father, a pastor, and working full-time. Something that a lot of pastors struggle with. And it can be difficult. Some pastors will say to me, I feel like I've got five balls in the air and I can only catch three. And the truth is, you can't do it without him. Because before you're a pastor, a husband, a father, a mother, a wife, and a worker, you're a Christian. The first thing you must remember is you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And before you can do all the other stuff, you've got to be doing this stuff. You've got to be in intimate fellowship with Him, seeking after Him with your whole heart. And you know what? As you have intimate fellowship with Him, he, if He calls you, He'll empower you to do it. Amen? And you'll be able to do it, and it won't stress out or, or, fr- or burn out. If you burn out, you're doing it in the flesh. But if God's empowering you to do it, it's going to be a joy. Amen? And that's the point here is that they're hiring these guys who don't have this relationship at all. It's a mess. Can, we pr- can I encourage you? Can you pray for the other pastors in town? Some of them are doing very well and they love the Lord. But my heart is to see revival because you know what? If there's going to be a fire in the pews, there's got to be a fire in the pulpit first. Amen? Because what's coming from here is what's going to impact people's lives. And I have such a burden for these guys. Not that I've arrived. I'm sure they can teach me things as well. I've got a burden for these guys. Don't you want to see Santa Cruz on fire for God? Wouldn't that radically shake the world up? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if this went from being the, you know, out of control county, to, you know, keep Santa Cruz weird, to how about keep Santa Cruz godly or make Santa Cruz godly, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. And we just thank you for your grace and Lord, we know that we are all prone to these same behaviors if we just take our eyes off of you and start trusting in ourselves. Lord, I pray we would be men and women who hunger and thirst after you. Lord, who desire to walk in intimate fellowship with you above all else. And Lord, we know as we do, you will give us direction and wisdom in every other aspect of life. I pray for the parents who are here. Help us, Lord, to exhibit godly discipline in our homes. Help us, Lord, to take spiritual leadership. Help us, Lord, to, to be faithful to, to your word, to be, walk in the fear of the Lord and to know your word and not to compromise it in any way. And I pray, Lord, that we would not try to adapt your word to our lifestyle, but adapt our lifestyles to your word. Be conformed to you. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We do pray for the other churches here in Santa Cruz, our our brothers and sisters in Christ, our co-laborers in the Lord. When the temptation comes to to water down truth so as not to offend, I pray you'd give the pastors boldness to speak your truth in love because people need to hear it. Lord, we love you and we praise you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.